the work that you did uh, as as part of the completion of your MA thesis, right? So I got really interested in your work because it seems to me crowdfunding research, the economics of participatory media, these are sort of hot topics. They've, they've been um, intensely relevant, I think, topics during the kind of digital media era for a little while. But the thing that I found so fascinating about your thesis was the way in which it was theorizing the blend of public relations, basically, and artistic production. I think the work that you did, first of all, to create this short film that you can watch on YouTube called The Woodsmen, but also then to kind of like theorize how you were creating the film, right? Like that, that to me just seemed um, so kind of uh, pressing and new and interesting. And also, I mean, you know, I'm a fan of the film. I think the grisly beauty of the bark shots and the credits, you know, show the, the kind of potential of high-definition filmmaking, right? Like, the your awareness of textures throughout the entire film is really beautiful. You know, how did you get to that vision, I guess? I could I could ask you to start. Uh, if you wanted to, like, introduce yourself or speak to that at all, that would be cool. Sure. Yeah, well, uh, so, I mean, I... I'm I'm struggling a bit with self uh, self identity and how to introduce myself. So I guess I'll open with that. Um, just figuring out. I feel like I have many different facets, and it's not easily like encapsulated in one quick introduction. But definitely, I would see myself as a creative professional. Um, and so, I mean, the Woodsman. Uh, it it was collaboration on so many different levels um, that I think you've touched on, uh, you know, first and foremost, the the audience part that we'll talk about, but then also just the, the group working together. I mean, it was um, a vision uh, that were four sort of key partners um, in bringing it to life. My husband and myself wrote the script, but then we worked really closely uh, with our cinematographer, Rob, and a lot of those beautiful shots that you talk about was his interpretation then of, of that shared vision. Um, and our lead actress, uh, Kirst, who's Rob's wife, um, was also very much, you know, brought in um, right from the early script drafts. You know, we would sit around uh, a cabin and read them out loud and, and figure out what was working and what wasn't working and share images of some of those gritty shots i think we were watching like the true detective intro and we loved some of that kind of stuff and wanted to bring that into our intro um so there was a lot of sort of shared shared vision and collaboration happening throughout that um that that i wanted to to look at but then then deciding to open it up to an audience and have them participate in the process. Um, that was really uh, an interesting thing that I think you're right. I think that kind of um, those, that research on collaborative filmmaking and crowdfunding is really, um, is really starting to gain some ground right now. But I think I wanted to, uh, to bring in the filmmaker's voice and hear not just for me and, and my team that I worked with, but here from other filmmakers, you know, what brought them there and how did that experience um, impact their process? And that, you know, that aspect of it, that there there's such a, you know, diversity of voices in the thesis, that's really, I think, what makes it such a valuable resource. Um, and, you know, that's the thing for me is that, you know, this is research where, 
you're trying to balance being, um, you know, a filmmaker with being a person like researching filmmaking. And you're also trying to do justice to um, all of the collaborators that you had involved, these different visions, these maybe competing visions, who knows? Um, is there so, so, you know, when I when I read your thesis, I got the sense that um, and, and I know you kind of name your methodology, but that there was something sort of cutting edge about the actual methodological approach um, to like trying to incorporate uh, sociologic sociologically, perhaps all of these different voices and different accounts, but then also analyze your own self doing this thing that you're right. So like, yeah, is there an aim sure. for that kind of research that tries to synchronously do the thing that you're also studying? Does, uh, does, yeah, yeah. Yeah, sort of. I mean, certainly I was in a unique position, I felt, to conduct this research. And that's what led me to even wanting to do the research. I mean, I'm very self-aware that I probably, you know, wouldn't necessarily have been aware of, of even this, that it was going on as a thing if I wasn't part of it. Um, so I, I chose autoethnography as part of my methods. And, and that's because it it helped me recognize myself as part of the community of practice that I wanted to study. And I really appreciated that methodology because like, I, I felt like it allowed me to wear my biases on my sleeve, kind of in both communities um, that I see myself as being part of. Um, you know, I really couldn't set aside the filmmaker part of me in conducting the research any more than I could set aside the academic part of me um, when I was filmmaking, which probably drove some of my collaborators batty. Um, but the, uh, you know, so, I mean, the autoethnographic reflections on my process allow me to gain some distance from my experience. It, it, it wasn't quite as synchronous maybe all the time. I mean, the, the one experience had happened sort of in the past, and I'd done some reflection on that, um, which, you know, really allowed me to kind of analyze it from both the outside as well as the inside of that experience. Um, something that I, I like, uh, Wang Chang, uh, one of the autoethnography um, authors that I was using, she really describes that process as using the researcher's autobiographical data to analyze and interpret their cultural assumptions. Mm. And that's kind of how I was really trying to pull apart, um, to, to pull apart that process and, and what some of those assumptions were on my part. Yeah, I mean, there's no, there, we shouldn't assume perhaps that we can't, uh, uh, you know, perform creative work, like do creative labor, and then also have a certain kind of critical distance from it, right? Like, I think um, those those two things are not mutually exclusive. But I guess the reason I'm curious about it is, you know, and I, I'm going to be talking to other people who are, who are, I think, both uh, artists and critics of art in uh, in this podcast. But the, the reason I'm curious about it is that I wonder, uh, um, as an artist and a researcher, which thing you feel ultimately more attached to. Like, when you think back, are you, do you feel uh, more attached, in a sense, like almost on an emotional level, to the product that is The Woodsman? Or do you feel like you, you put more energy and effort and, like, your soul into the thesis part of it? Does that question kind of make sense to you? Well, yeah, I, I mean, it makes sense as a question, but I think it uh, mm -hmm. it's a hard answer um, because I think there's part of my heart and my soul in both of them. Certainly the the research process, um, yeah, it was uh, it was quite an intensive experience and, uh, you know, frustrating and hair pulling just as any artistic creation could be. Mm -hmm. um, 
yeah, and I think that that's something that that's part of my sort of identity crisis on some level is figuring out, you know, what I am. Am I a a researcher or an artist? They do think I identify with both. Um, sometimes more as an artist, and sometimes more as an academic. So, um, I, I'm really not sure that there's a clear. Uh, you know, I think um, I'm also mm. a Gemini. So ask me one day, and I'll give you one answer, and then ask me again tomorrow, mm-hmm. and it'll be different. Yeah, I mean, maybe we get too hung up on labels to some extent, right? But you know, it, it's it ought to be primarily about trying to under, understand, analyze the actual practice of making art, and that's what you do, right, in the thesis. And and you know, this kind of leads into my my next question, which is you know about the the main point of departure for the research, this idea that you know, public relations is a very relevant part, especially today, of independent filmmaking. Like, you you basically argue that you you have virtually no choice but to compromise and accept particular kinds of maybe economic constraints as just a practical condition for making your work. Um, do you, I guess, feel like on, a, on, again, that level of, like, labeling, whether this takes away the idea of an independent artist Um, And I mean, like in general, you've kind of gestured to this. Are you resistant of that label of being an indie artist or an avant-garde kind of filmmaker? Um, Do you, yeah, any, any thoughts on that? Um, Yeah. I mean, I think again, it's, it's a bit of yes and no. Um, Mm. So, I mean, I do think that sometimes there is that idea of, of indie independent filmmaker, you know, there's the lone auteur with a singular vision. Um, and I guess they do kind of want to challenge that. But I think, you know, just in my introduction, I also uh, challenged that idea. Uh, you know, uh, filmmaking is already a very inherently collaborative process. And certainly the interviews I conducted with the other filmmakers echo this. Um, you know, it takes a team of incredibly talented people, each bringing something of their own artistic sensibility to the table. Um, and and there are compromises uh, in many, if not every, successful film project. I think, you know, the popularity of the director's cut on uh, on DVDs and and iTunes special features really kind of speaks to this compromise that sometimes happens. Um, mm-hmm. So I don't think that collaborating is is new, but I think. There is like a new level of collaboration with the audience because you're bringing a group of people who don't necessarily fully understand the filmmaking process, um, but they're excited and they want to, to see, you know, how the process works. And, and they also want to see films that aren't just, you know, the typical studio standards. So I think there is still room for, you know, more avant-garde, you know, taking risks um it just it kind of acts when you collaborate w- with the audience it kind of acts as like a signal jam to that closed loop of of the regular studio system that i talk about which kind of requires filmmakers to already have a body of successful films in order to attain the funding that they need to create successful films and and to produce a body of work um so i think that's why filmmakers are jumping at that opportunity but yeah, I mean, there is a level of concession that needs to be made when you're making art that way. But, but I think you always have to figure out, you know, are you making art to 
for you. I think one of my filmmaker interviews said, you know, are you are you making it just to watch it in your mom's basement? Mm-hmm. Or are you, you know, are you making something that you're intending to share? In which case, I think then you have to consider the recipient in that process. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. Like to me, uh, like I, I could speak to the end of The Woodsman, right? The end of The Woodsman is this violent kind of style study that segues into a kind of credit sequence uh, or you could say post-credit scenes that evoke i think stranger things mm-hmm. with the, with the music with the music to a certain extent and even perhaps it right the it being right. now right the 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 renewed sure. it or the yeah. new one Luke, it's now you know that's whatever like, the, yeah yeah it's the For highest sure. grossing horror film i guess of all time now um so you know you're 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 kind of not stealing but summoning from these established uh kind of like mainstream films but in ways that are perhaps like deliberate fan service like knowing fan service um and that that to me is interesting like uh there's a way in which net netflix in its absence sort of like looms in both your thesis and in the woodsman at least you know stranger things is like the flagship original kind of netflix series um and i guess i wanted to kind of mention the omission of netflix from your thesis research uh just because i think the absence signifies more than its presence in a way Mm -hmm. right like netflix has has established this huge production presence in canada it's invested a huge amount of money in the creative economy of canada but there is still this kind of criticism of know a private monopoly having this amount of influence within canadian popular culture why did you snub them uh, i guess <laughs> is the question and then also yeah. you know why are you also um you know kind of citing their show with the you know credits scene i don't i don't know if you had any thoughts on that sure yeah. i mean I, I would say i guess for me the thesis was talking largely about independent filmmakers and to me that means filmmakers kind of acting outside of the established sort of studio system i talk a little bit you know about that studio system or you know like the quote unquote hollywood model um but i don't really specifically list any of these studios either i i feel that netflix would fit right in you know with a listing like warner brothers and columbia walt disney um and in canada that would probably include like Bell Media, CBC, you know, those are just as difficult to break into for independent um, filmmakers as the big Hollywood studios. And I don't really see Netflix as being a champion of independent film. And I'm I'm not sure even with their investment that that's what they're trying to represent themselves as either. I mean, they're a business first and foremost, and it's great that they have invested into the Canadian cultural economy. And I think that they absolutely should because they're part of our culture now and, and we're referencing them, certainly. Um, but really, this investment, is it's mostly for partnerships with the large Canadian broadcasters, with the establishment. Mm-hmm. Um, sure, you know, they'll occasionally buy and distribute an independent film after it's already made, but they're not really going to invest in that independent production process. Um, so Netflix still, I guess, represents that closed loop of access to me. You know, if you're not Martin Scorsese or Adam Sandler, then, you know, mm-hmm. it's really Netflix isn't offering anything unique. Um, so, I mean, for the independent filmmaker, Netflix might represent a distribution method at, at best. 
at best. And if you, you know, mm-hmm. you don't, you don't get to that distribution part of filmmaking until you've actually made your film and found someone who believes in you enough to invest in that production process. So for my research, I was, I was really focused on, you know, all the things that lead up to having a film that you might be interested in then looking at um, distribution options. And, and sure, you know, maybe even some of the filmmakers that I interviewed, I'm, I'm sure Netflix would be, you know, on, on any of our lists as, you know, that would be a great potential distributor. But, um, but yeah, I don't really see them as being part of the indie process, like, like crowdfunding has the potential to be. Um, but they're, they're absolutely part of the culture and they're helping to establish the new genre rules and the new sort of audience psyche, which I think is, is why we, A, love their programs and B, kind of did, uh, you know, kind of reference um, that feel uh, in some of the things that we were doing. Yeah, it's it's interesting how you like in your answer, you, you really blend the kind of intangible aspects of Netflix and also just the tangible ones. Right. Like materially, there's as you say, like there's not a lot of difference between Netflix and other forms of media monopolies. But then what's weird is like intangible, intangibly, culturally, maybe, um, you know, the emphasis on streaming perhaps has produced uh, an environment that allows for more experimentation. So it's like kind of interesting how these things are kind of working alongside one another. And, and you know, generally, you know, it underlines the role of, I think, digital media in just changing the, uh, the, the landscape to a certain extent, right, economically and materially. Um, and this is kind of bit, a bit of a self-serving segue in the sense that uh, I wanted to ad- address the, this uh, theorist that I've been reading, uh, Lee Claire LeBurge, on this this idea of like artists occupying a, what she calls a scene of decommodification where artists you know it's increasingly hard to i think you're saying kind of establish yourself uh establish a specific kind of represent uh, uh, reputation or artistic voice and so you know LeBurge says now the artists have this this sense of entrepreneurial kind of responsibility where you have to be an investor in yourself who protects your brand she says itself in a kind of aestheticized capture of possible future value um so i mean like this is this is the scene that she's describing right in which artists she says have to constantly kind of barter um their labor uh for the i guess purpose of establishing a rep- rep- uh, reputation are you aware of the pressures, I suppose, of reputation, self-capitalization, as she calls them, um, or generally, like, do you have uh, comments on this scene of decommodification that requires new strategies of, like, bartering and collaboration? Yeah, well, I thought, it. yeah, I, I loved a lot of what she was saying and feel like it does really fit, you know, with, with my own experience, even though I wasn't looking at it, you know, that way but I would agree you know there's a lot of pressures first having to have a self that is marketable in some sense you've got to be able to distill (laughs) your intro down which is you know something that I've been struggling with Uh, you have to shift your focus away from your art and and start focusing on your own self-image and you know as an artist that part of me even as an academic i don't want to have to think about my appearance or how i come across or you know mm. distilling my bio down to a tagline i just want to you know make something great whether it's art or, or research but uh, you know so i think 
I think that's the biggest pressure of this kind of self-capitalization um, because there's a lot of labor inherent in self-promotion and building this personal brand. And this labor, you know, I argue requires that public relations and it could be entrepreneurial skills, you know, that you're going to have to learn and then implement. And that means spending time away from the actual creation of art. Um, and I think that's a huge part about what I talk about in my thesis. I want to create awareness for filmmakers um, as to what this kind of labor looks like, uh, self-promoting, um, and look for ways that they can try make the path of entrepreneur less of a divergence, I guess, from their path as an artist. I think, you know, there are certainly times when these paths might go in opposite directions and really pull the filmmaker away from from their original focus so I'd like to help them to find a way to blend that a little better um, try to look at the labor of filmmaking a little differently uh, determining where there is room for collaboration where self-promotion won't increase the workload but might actually reduce it um, things like crowdsourcing which I discuss you know which might be a little bit like the bartering system that Liberge uh, talks about and the filmmaker yeah I mean sometimes they're bartering with other artists in this crowdsourcing or sometimes they're bartering with with the audience you know and and they're exchanging for bragging rights or access to the art making process they're exchanging that for you know actual um, actual capital sometimes yeah, and um, you know this—we've uh, kind of been circling around it, but this uh, key thing of crowdsourcing. Perhaps we should like talk about this, you know, uh, specifically in your research. This phenomenon of of using, you know, various forms of networking, so social media being the kind of primary one, to open up channels and access to money. Um, you talk about how it has specific consequences, of course, on the creative pro product. Um, Generally speaking, like what insights did you uh, glean from thinking about the risks and rewards of, you know, getting money, but also in exchange kind of getting constant feedback? Did that open dialogue mean that you had to make specific sacrifices and so on? Or did, you know, did you even experience those creative adjustments as um, sacrifices, right? Or was it more, did you find it a source of inspiration? Yeah, I mean... I think that that there are, you know, some sacrifices, but I, it's it is something that I'm, you know, I'm trying to to look at, and something that I really did look at, and I think that there wouldn't have been any room to offer sacrifices to our audience if it wasn't for the audience in the first place, right? I mean, there were some interesting findings, you know, about how filmmakers who were attempting to make films carried the actual and imagined audience around in their in their minds throughout the process. And, and that did impact some of the decisions that they made at specific creative junctures. You know, they're, they're trying to interpret what, how or these people actually going to react and and these people weren't always you know sometimes they were just general fans of the genre so you're following some of those 
genre rules that you're aware of and, and how audiences react to that. And, and other times it's really specific people that you're like, okay, they're going to start to comment. What are they going to say? How do I move forward from that? Um, but without them and without their support and without their um, sort of willingness to share this collective vision and contribute financially, then there would be nothing to sacrifice. Like you wouldn't, you wouldn't be making anything actually. Um, mm -hmm. So it's a balancing act. And, and I know that um, th that's a lot of what I discussed with my participants is, um, you know, how that, you know, shifted their work. Um, for me, there was also sort of a, a level of guilt and um, a sense of fealty by all of these filmmakers wanting to give your audience back in worth, you know, what they gave you in money so that there is sort of a truer sort of capitalistic exchange there. Um, but yeah, if it wasn't for them, then I think we all kind of felt like we wouldn't, um, we wouldn't be making anything in which to have any sacrifices for to begin with. So we'd rather have some sacrifices and make something that we're all still excited about um, rather than have what we might think of as a perfect artistic idea mm -hmm. in our heads and never see it come to fruition. And and oftentimes there were some amazing suggestions that, that made it better that never would have come out of my head alone so I needed all those other people to weigh in and and come up with some cool new things yeah to some extent you could say it it takes some of the pressure of of creating art out of the equation right like um I can see how it might anyway like you're you're answerable in a fairly direct way to your fans your audience and so that 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 perfectionism you talk about trying to get it perfect which can sometimes lead to such a you know paralyzing feel, fear of failure that you don't do anything that sort of gets short circuited to some extent right um, you know at least to the extent that you don't feel just adrift kind of you know on an island trying to create something you're you're directly connected and so I guess you know I I, I wanted to ask I guess because it does come up in your thesis um, and and. I wonder actually if it came up in your conversations with other filmmakers, where does that specific fear of failure come from? Like um, failure is, is important. We're constantly told in creative professions, right? If you you have to dare greatly uh, in order to, in order to do anything and you have to be willing to fail, but because there is this entrepreneurial emphasis on cultivating a specific brand, I think fear of failure is, is, it can be, um, an overwhelming part of the equation, right? Where mm -hmm. if your art doesn't resonate, there's something about you that isn't like, it's not breaking through, right? It's like your brand is has collapsed on itself or something. Um, does does collaboration allow you to short circuit that fear of failure or does it make, you know, uh, make you more acutely aware of it? I don't know. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's not something that I overly discussed with my filmmakers, but I do. I, it is something that I certainly reflected on because my own fear of failure did come up in my own, um, my own reflections on that that process. I think I think you're right. I think fear of failure can be paralyzing, and it can 
you know, prevent you from moving forward and trying anything, which is never how art gets created. And so collaborating, I think, gets you to the ledge. (laughs) It gets you Mm -hmm. to the point of no return where you're like, oh, well, now we're all in. Now we're doing this. But then the fear of failure becomes so much more public. (laughs) You know, it becomes so much more... um, you realize that there that there are all kinds of eyes and and you also feel very connected to your to your partners and to your audience and you don't want anyone to feel like there's been a failure on any part so all of a sudden the onus isn't just on your own failure but on everybody's failure um so yeah i mean i think that i think that in art you know every artist feels very wrapped up in art and it can feel very personal if that's then rejected or or seen as a failure but yeah in crowdfunding you're almost kind of setting yourself up to fail on two different levels because you're kind of essentially pitching yourself as the only person qualified to tell this story in this way and you have to build yourself up and, and make the whole process public um, and that becomes like a very high ledge to be standing on and potentially fall from in front of people um, if they decide, you know, you didn't reach where they thought that the project was going. Um, you're kind of failing on that artistic level and then you're also failing on that marketing level where but you said that you <laughs> you could do this, you know. Um, yeah, I think that that's kind of part of it and then and then the whole process of art being messy and you're inviting people in to look at you know this the not pretty stuff again to to sort of go back to the the hollywood model where we only see making of featurettes and things like that that have been highly polished and they only come out after a final film is available you know to to open it up in the middle of the process and kind of show people the dog's breakfast that the things can kind of look at (laughs) and look like in the middle. Um, That can be hard because, because they might feel like you've lost your vision, even though you feel like, no, this is just a normal part of the process. So that's when it becomes really important for filmmakers to have that clear vision and that clear filter to hear what they're saying and go, okay, I think that's just because, what they're looking at right now but in my head I know we're still getting to where to where I said we were going so I think this will all come out in the wash later um and and failure is scary because you know we all want to keep making art you know nobody wants to be a one-hit wonder or worse you know no no hit at all um and failing can mean that you don't get that next chance to to do something else yeah. So, yeah, perfectly put. I mean, living on the ledge, right? Like, what does it mean to live on that ledge? Uh, it's a it's it can be a very uncomfortable position, of course. But like it is it's the only place from which to actually generate anything. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. is to kind of risk it. Um, thanks. Thanks so much for that. I guess, you know, the only other question I wanted to ask is, you know, um, I don't want to take too, too much of your time, but thank you so much for for doing this is, you know, about film, I guess, in general, like, 
there are films that we subjectively consider to be successes. And then there are films that for us are complete flops, right? Uh, do you have favorite films or favorite genres of film? Do you listen to buzz? Like, do you gravitate to films that have a certain amount of buzz around them? Or do you generally try and curate your own stuff? Do you have like eclectic tastes in movies or any, any, um, yeah, just curious. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a bit of a mix. I mean, certainly there's like, a critical mass right and if there's so much buzz then you're like well i have to see this have movie to, yeah. but uh it, that could also be you know that that buzz is setting that that film up as well and if it doesn't meet uh -huh. what i think you know those expectations that have risen uh for me then that can be kind of a disappointment um and i would say that my my love of film is kind of really eclectic i mean uh, i can like a great documentary a great you know indie and then a huge hollywood blockbuster that i think yeah they just really pulled that off and that was amazing and fun um mm. i think i always have a particular love for horror i think there's some great uh, storytelling that comes and a lot of a lot of new uh filmmakers start in that genre so you can see some cool innovations uh coming out of it and and it's it's really fun to watch and it's so much fun to make who doesn't love to spray you know your actors mm. with buckets of of fake blood so <laughs> <laughs> um yeah i think that's always gonna have a sweet spot for me uh you know somebody's doing something really cool and new um in the horror genre but i like to see yeah, I like to see a lot of different kinds of film. Yeah, I, I kind of agree about horror. Like, uh, even though I'm uh, personally, as a as a academic, I guess, uh, interested in the representation of violence, um, and especially violence that tries to get to a place of, um, you know, simulating the real, right? Um, mm. Even though, in, even though I, I'm kind of concerned about the effects of that, I'm also, I, you can't deny, uh, in a way, the, like, the, the power of, I think, particular horror films to remind you just how beautiful a medium film can be. Like, the blend of music and and shot framing in a film like It Follows, for example, is mm -hmm. just, it's incredible, right? Like, it's for just, sure. it's, yeah. you know, the thing of, of beauty. And I guess on that level of just aesthetics, um, I wonder how it felt to screen The Woodsman in a public space, which you did for its opening, versus, you know, just posting it on YouTube. Like, do you feel that there's anything to that film purist's perspective that the big screen and a collective experience is the best way to really appreciate the high definition textures of those bark shots in the opening credits? Or are we, you know, forgetting how people watch movies today? Um, any thoughts on that? Um, that was a little bit trickier for me to answer as the filmmaker sitting with the audience. I mean, I, I don't think AI breathed for the <laughs> whole time <laughs> and then um you know it was just an amazing experience to hear them laugh or gasp or you know whatever at the right moment mm -hmm. so for me like th that can't be beat and having you know people comment on the youtube uh, channel is never going to match that experience but do I think that they can have a great experience watching it on their own? Absolutely. Um, I think I think that that is something that as filmmakers we need to consider. You know, are people going to sit around and watch it on their own? Are they going to watch it in groups? 
Um, and, and I don't, I guess I'm not really a purist that way. I mean, I like to be able to sit at home and watch films. And sometimes they find that rather than it being a collective experience, it can just be a really distracting experience to try and watch it in a theater. And I feel like I'm missing things if, you know, there's, there's motion or com- commotion in the theater with me. Um, so uh, sometimes, you know, I feel like the better experience can be at, at home. Um, mm. But certainly, yeah, some of the bigger, bigger films are still produced intentionally to first watch, you know, on a big screen. And, and you're never going to beat that big screen, uh, you know, no matter how big your living room is. I can't tell you how uh, enough sort of like how grateful I am that you've been, you know, willing to connect with me and, and think through some of these these things. I mean, these are, you know, film is... As I say, like a, a, a medium that is, you know, just gorgeous to look at, can be transformative, but we're at sort of this transitional moment in a way where you're seeing, you know, films emerge that uh, do look and feel new, I would say, in, in some ways, you know? Uh, and so, you know, to speak to someone who is who's producing work, but also trying to theorize how one produces work at this time is like, it's wonderful. So thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you. This has been great.